uh, come to Scripture again. As you know, we're in our study of the book of Revelation and taking a slow look through these first three chapters, and we come this morning to the second letter uh, that we read in Revelation chapter 2. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at what is the shortest of the seven letters that Christ dictates to his servant, the Apostle John, to send to the church, this one located in the city of Smyrna, a wonderful letter, a letter of compassion from the Lord of the church to a persecuted church. Let's look at that text together, Revelation chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 8, all the way through verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. As we noted already in our study of these letters is that the the structure of each of these letters generally follows the same seven ingredients, although we'll notice an exception with this one. The ingredients are as follows. First of all, as we will see in the beginning part of verse 8, these letters begin with an address. The, the church is addressed by Christ himself. We'll see that, verse 8, the address. Secondly, the assessor. Christ will identify himself. He will use a description to define who he is, who is the one that is giving the assessment of the church, and there is always a special connection to the description that, God, that, that Christ gives and the state of the church. That will be found in the second half of verse 8. Then we will see the approval that Christ gives to this church in verse 9. Then we'll notice that although in most of the other churches, the letters to the other churches, there is an accusation that is leveled, but we will see in this letter there is no accusation, that fourth ingredient. It is missing from this church testifying to the wonderful state of this church in Smyrna, but there is an admonition, that's our fifth element, an admonition that we'll find in verse 10, the the most significant element as Christ gives needed counsel to this suffering congregation. And then it comes to a close in verse 11, first with an appeal in the first part of verse 11, and then finally a special assurance, a guarantee that is given to those who heed the message to all true believers. Well, before we get into that, a little bit of background on this church in Smyrna and the letter that was written to this, the shortest of the letters. As I've mentioned before, we can tell by the order of these letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation that the messengers carry this writing, this book of Revelation, from church to church, beginning in Ephesus, then going on to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, following what was known in that day as a postal route. John recorded these letters and the entire book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. And as he's recording these letters, these messengers come as delegates of these these seven churches to minister to John on that island. And in return, they bring back the book of Revelation to these churches. And so what would happen would be that beginning in Ephesus, each messenger would read the book of Revelation as a whole to the congregation. And then the messengers that were not associated with that church would then continue on to the next church where the same process would happen again. And it's likely that as 
this book would be read in each of the seven churches. A, a, a copy would be also made for each of those churches, following that postal route all the way to the city of Laodicea. And we'll read of that church and that city at the end of chapter 3. Now, with that as our background, we, we come to the address that is given in the first part of verse 8 to this church. John records the words of Jesus as follows, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Now, a little bit about Smyrna, because as is the case with all of these letters, there is a connection between the contents of the letter and the, the context of each of these churches. So what do we know about Smyrna? Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus along the Aegean coast. And this city had a population up to somewhere around 200,000, so probably not as large as Ephesus, but rivaled Ephesus in different ways. Although the gulf at Ephesus was always silting in, in fact, today when you go to visit Ephesus, it's about 15 miles away from the shoreline because of all the silt that has accumulated in the last 2,000 years. Smyrna had a different kind of a harbor. It's very, very deep. And in fact, it's still used as a major port today. Smyrna, moreover, was different than Ephesus in that Smyrna was known not so much as that cosmopolitan city of, like Ephesus, but Smyrna was known for its beauty. The writers of ancient history call Smyrna the ornament of the province of Asia. It, it, Smyrna was considered to be that most ideal city, and it wasn't so much even the landscape that made Smyrna so beautiful. Rather, it was its attractive architecture. The layout of the city was particularly stunning, and the way that the buildings had been built and the way that the city worked with its its thoroughfares made it a very, very attractive city. One artist has rendered the, the look of the city during the apostles' time as something like this. As you see on the, the screen, you can see the harbor there, very deep harbor and didn't get silted in. Boats would come in and, and then a beautiful layout of the city in a kind of grid design with a very large uh, marketplace or agora that that uh, was the largest in the world of that day. Now, there were other things as well that Smyrna was known for. It was known to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer. As I said, it boasted the largest agora or marketplace in the world at that time. And the city was known especially for its longstanding fidelity to the city of Rome. What's interesting is that way back two, three centuries even before the writing of the book of Revelation, Smyrna was the first city to, to establish what's called the cult of the Dia Roma, the cult of the city of Rome. They personified the city of Rome as this object of worship, this female goddess, and then they constructed a temple, the first of its kind, in, their, in the city limits in, in 195 B.C. Moreover, coming more closer to the time of the, the apostles, Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, who ruled from AD 14 to AD 37, wanted to build for himself, for his own honor and for his own worship, a temple somewhere in the province of, of Asia. And out of about a dozen cities that had tried to get that honor, Smyrna was selected as being the most beautiful. Now keep that in mind. We're going to see how that will play into what Christ mentions here in this text and the difficulties that the church faced at the, at the era of the end of the first century, around eighty ninety six. But we have to ask the question, when did the gospel first penetrate this city? We don't really know, but it's likely, most likely, that a church was planted there due to the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was 35 miles to the south, so not a long distance away. And we read in the book of Acts, particularly in chapter 19, 
that the Apostle Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. And that's where his concentration was from about AD 52 to AD 55. And Luke records that the influence of those three years of ministry was particularly expansive. Notice how he describes it in Acts 19, verses 9 to 10. Luke writes, But when some, and this refers to Paul's ministry in the synagogue in Ephesus, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way. Luke regularly describes the church as the way, speaking evil of the way before the people. He, being Paul, withdrew from them. He took away the disciples, and and he reasoned then daily in the school of Tyrannus there in Ephesus. And then Luke records this note. This took place for two years in that particular school so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This first seminary that, that, that the Apostle Paul establishes there was so effective that messengers go from, from Ephesus to the north and to the east and to the northeast and to the south and the southeast as they go throughout the province of Asia, following these roads and going to all the major cities, including places like Smyrna and Pergamum and Philadelphia and Sardis and Laodicea and Colossae and planting the churches as they go. The gospel penetrated, but it was not an easy soil. And remember, as we reflect back on what we've already covered in the first letter, the letter to the Ephesians, at the end of the first century, the churches faced incredible pressure from both the Jews as well as the government. It was not like it was even during Paul's day when the church was considered to be a sect underneath the Jewish people and therefore could worship as they pleased because the government allowed the Jews freedom for worship. And so the church could, could enjoy those freedoms under the protection of that unique status. But by the end of the first century, that was gone. It was no longer possible. And so the, the, the church was faced with this dilemma. Either you side and you agree and you follow the law of the Gentile magistrates, Roman law, and you worship Caesar and you engage in all of the civic religious activities of the city. And there would be many. Any kind of of city life involved the worship of gods and goddesses and the worship of the emperor himself. Or, on the other hand, your only other protection under the law was to side with the Jews, who, of course, hated the name of Jesus and so wanted to expose the church so that the church would face all of the wrath of Rome. One commentator describes the context this way. G.K. Beale writes this, Indeed, the imperial cult, that is the worship of the emperor, permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor, so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions, and sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited, or you could even say coerced, to do so. City officials were so dedicated to the cult that they even distributed money to citizens from public funds to pay for sacrifices to the emperor. It was almost impossible to have a share in a city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Pressure on Christians to conform to such participation would have increased during Emperor Domitian's reign from 81 to 96, and that's the period in which the book of Revelation was written. Those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal, and unpatriotic, and would be arrested and punished according to Roman law. That was the state 
of affairs at that day. And that's what landed the Apostle John himself on the island of Patmos. And as we read this letter, we find that the church in Smyrna was a church that particularly suffered due to this context. That was the addressee, the church in Smyrna. Now let's look at the assessor. How does Jesus identify himself to the suffering church? Notice the second half of verse 8. These are precious words. Jesus says, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. The exalted Christ identifies himself with two kinds of characteristics here, characteristics that he had already revealed himself by back in chapter 1 when he revealed himself to John on the island of Patmos. Now, the first of these characteristics is seen in that first phrase, the title, the first and the last. If you flip the page back and you go to chapter 1, verse 17, you read this of John's own experience of the glorified Christ. John says in 117, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That title was not invented by Jesus that day. The title goes back, it echoes how Yahweh defines himself, particularly in the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 41 verse 4, here Yahweh says this, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? That's the question that Yahweh asks. And then he says, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am he. Or Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Or in Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 13, where Yahweh says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. Jesus echoes this very language in his description to this suffering church. He will use it as well at the very end of the book of Revelation as a closing when he says this in chapter 22, verses 12 to 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This particular title points to Jesus' divine nature. It emphasizes his eternality and his ultimacy. He is not defined or limited by time. He is the originator of time. And in fact, everything moves toward him as the telos, as the great end of all of history. He is the first and the last. Obviously, such a description to a church that was suffering would have been very welcome. Here is the picture of absolute sovereignty. One commentator helpfully applies these words to their context as follows, quote, in the role of the eternal and infinite one, he launches his word of encouragement to a church exposed to fierce persecution. He was already in existence at the beginning of all things and will be after all things come to an end. He is the eternal and abiding one. Neither time nor things within time pose any limitation for him. And that is what a persecuted church needed to hear. Things had not gotten out of control. This one who is the first and the last is still sovereign and is still working out his plan, and that plan will come to its designed end. 
But also we see a second description here of this assessor of the churches and of the church in Smyrna in particular. We find that right at the end of verse 8 where he goes on, where Christ goes on to say, who was dead and has come to life. Who was dead and has come to life. This too goes back to chapter 1, where immediately after Jesus tells John there on the island of Patmos not to fear because he is the first and the last, we read in verse 18 that Jesus calls himself the living one, and he was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore. This is a a reference to the human nature of Christ. And this particular description of death and resurrection is a reference to the humiliation of Jesus as well as his triumph. And these two things are also very important as we read of the persecution facing this church in Smyrna. It draws us back to great texts like Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 11, which combine these two ideas of the humiliation of the Son of God as well as the triumph. There, Paul writes this, who, although he, speaking of the Son, speaking of Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of of a bondservant, and being found made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, speaking there of his resurrection and ascension, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are on uh, those who are in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was important for this church to hear because Jesus was one who himself had experienced death. He had experienced humiliation in the form of persecution. He had experienced the the cross, the mockery of the world as he died on that cross. But not only that, not only did he die that historic death, but he also came to life. He experienced resurrection. The grave could not hold him. He conquered death and stood victorious over his enemies. So to hear from one like this, to hear from one who has the divine attributes of eternality and ultimacy, and to hear from one who also has the experiences, the real experience of death and resurrection, would have been exactly what this persecuted church needed for comfort. And we see such tender care from Jesus to this church as he reveals himself with this statement. That leads us then to the approval of this church. The approval is found in verse 9. We saw the address in the first part of verse 8, the assessor in the second part of verse 8. Now the approval. Jesus says this to the church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In all of the churches, in all of the letters to the churches, Christ begins by affirming his intimate knowledge of their situation. He is that one who walks among the churches, and regardless of their state, he is not separate or distant from it. He is intimately aware, and he is intimately aware of the suffering of this congregation. And he particularly identifies three praiseworthy characteristics that marked this church. First of all, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. This is the overall quality that that marked the state of the church in Smyrna. It was a church that was undergoing trouble, not just any kind of trouble, 
This is not just regular hardships of life. This is not just the groanings of of living in a fallen world. This was a particular kind of trouble, one that inflicts distress. One commentator defines this word as a restricting pressure that burdens the spirit. That's what this church was, was faced with, tribulation. They were being pressed even to the point of, of bursting. And you can understand again why in this kind of a, a socio-religious context. Again, another description of, of what life was like under Domitian at that time. Robert Thomas writes, under Domitian, emperor worship was made compulsory for every Roman citizen. Failure to comply meant death. Each year, every citizen had to burn incense at Caesar's altar, after which he was issued a certificate. To be without a certificate, as must have been the case for Christians obedient to Christ, was uh, uh, was to risk discovery and the death penalty. And that's the kind of tribulation that this church faced. In fact, we we see it now described in even more specific terms in the second and, and third qualities that Jesus acknowledges or knows of this church. Jesus says, I also know your, your poverty, your poverty. It's, it's not just here. This term doesn't just communicate the idea that those Christians came from a, a low class, like the slave class. That's not how the term is being used. Rather, the term in, in, instead indicates that these believers were suffering loss. They were suffering poverty because of their profession of faith. In fact, it's not even the normal word for poverty the normal word, the normal Greek word for poverty would describe someone who doesn't have that which is superfluous, someone who doesn't have that which is extra. That's how the Greeks would des- describe poverty. But the term that's used here refers to abject poverty, extreme poverty, having nothing at all. And probably what this refers to is the fact that as professing Christians, they would have been banned from from practicing certain kinds of trades. They would have been, especially here as we'll find, they would have been left defenseless against Jewish and Gentile mobs who were given free reign to come and plunder their possessions. And from what we can tell is that as the progress of time went on, the persecution was ramping up. They were not only facing opposition, they were already having their possessions stolen from them because of their profession of faith. We find here, even as Christ acknowledges this abject poverty, he also throws in this parenthetical statement as a kind of comfort to remind them that what matters most is not those possessions that were being stolen. What matters most is not the promotions being lost. What matters most is not having to undergo demotions or even being kicked out of your particular area of work. What matters most are true spiritual riches. And Christ says, you are rich. By the way, this is going to be exactly opposite of what he's going to say to the church in Laodicea. A church that had a lot materially. A church that, that exalted in its, in its wealth. And Jesus is going to say to them... In verse 17 of chapter 3, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What a contrast. This church that probably was, according to the world's standards, wretched and miserable and poor, This is a church that Christ exalts as being rich. There is a third characteristic that Christ acknowledges here. He says, not only do I know your tribulation, not only do I know your poverty, but I know the blasphemy. Now, this term for blasphemy, we're familiar with it because it's often used to describe the kind of rhetoric that comes from the unbeliever's mouth as he speaks in a denigrating way, in a defamatory way, against God himself. But this term is also used generally to speak of human against human slander. 
Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 21 and 22, for example, that from out of the hearts of men, as part of the natural state of the unregenerate man, come all kinds of filth, including blasphemies, slander against one another. And probably what Jesus is referring to here is that this kind of blasphemy, as we're going to see, it's coming from the Jews, this kind of blasphemy included exposing Christians to the law, exposing Christians to officials, ratting them out, tattletaling, as well as making false claims. In fact, we know from this period of time, and especially into the second and third centuries, Christians were slandered in all kinds of ways. They were accused of cannibalism because of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of incest because of of the fellowship that they enjoyed, which was so bizarre to to the watching world. They were accused of breaking up homes. They were accused of atheism. They were accused of disloyalty, a lack of patriotic spirit. They were accused of being destabilizers to the culture. Those are all the kind of slanderous things, and you could add many, many more to that, and that is what this church in Smyrna was facing. And Jesus says it comes from a a particular source. He says it is from those who say they are Jews and are not. From the Jews of all people. The slander came from them. Those who enjoyed this special protection under the law, they didn't need to offer those sacrifices to Caesar. They were given a pass because of their long-standing monotheism, and these Jews were the ones who would rat out the Christians and say, these are not, have nothing to do with us. They are lawbreakers. Punish them. What's interesting is that Jesus calls these Jews not real Jews, not real descendants of Abraham. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. It's not referring to an actual structure here, but the term synagogue would refer to the gathering. And the idea that, that, that Jesus is, is bringing out here is that this is not just individual Jews who are making these kinds of slanderous claims against the Christians. These are the Jews coming together. And when they come together for so-called worship, they are scheming how to slander the church. And Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. The term Satan refers to an adversary, the adversary, the great adversary of God. And this is the one who is gathering these Jews together and to use them as as instruments for his attacks on the church. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And I know the blasphemy that is coming against you. I know. And Jesus could say this, who in his own human nature had faced all of these things and more. Now, as I said, we move to the fourth component of the general structure here, and that's the accusation, but there is none. As Christ writes to this church, and in distinction from from five of these other churches, there is no accusation. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church, and so we then move on to the next element of these letters and this letter as well, the admonition. Even though Jesus has no accusation, he does have instruction for them. And that's found in verse 10. Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He begins with the admonition, do not fear. And the nature of the language here isn't do not start fearing, but rather cease being afraid. He acknowledges that in their frailty, and we can certainly understand this, in their frailty, this church was already afraid. But Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. Cease being afraid. Even though there is a threat to more, 
cease being afraid. In fact, what Jesus does here is is very fascinating. He doesn't say to the church, stop being afraid. I am going to stop the persecution. Now, that would be a wonderfully welcome message. But he says, do not be afraid what you are about to suffer. Smyrnians, it's actually going to get worse. Christ, the sovereign one, does not remove the suffering, but actually promises for them even more. We read as we continue here that the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Now we have a second name for this great adversary. Back in verse 9, he was defined as as Satan, the, the great adversary. But now here in verse 10, a different name is used. He is known as the slanderer. The term diabolos is particularly noteworthy for, the, for describing one who brings accusations, who brings blasphemies. And Jesus here now moves away from the Jews to refer to the agency of the devil. It's no longer the synagogue of Satan, but now it's just Satan. Now it's just the devil who is about to cast some of them into prison. Paul has lost sight, or or, excuse me, Jesus has lost sight here of, of human instrumentality and is merely pointing to the ultimate agency behind this persecution. This is important. In fact, it's interesting to note in these letters how Jesus describes this ultimate source of persecution And it's helpful for us to remember this as well. One commentator, R.C. Trench, puts it this way in terms of the emphasis here on the ultimate agency of this persecution. He writes this, We sometimes assume that Christians were persecuted because the truth for which they bore witness affronted the pride and prejudices and passions of men. And this is true, but we have not so reached the ground of the matter. There is nothing more remarkable in the records that have come down to us of the early persecutions than the sense which the confessors and martyrs and those who narrate their sufferings and their triumphs that these great afflictions, these great flights of affliction through which they were called to pass were the immediate work of the devil and no mere result of the offended passions, prejudices, and interests of men. The enemies of flesh and blood as mere tools and instruments are nearly lost sight of by them in a continual reference to Satan as the invisible but real author of all. And that is important for us as well to remember. We have a great adversary. We have a great slanderer, and that one is not our boss. That one is not even the president of the country or the governor of the state or the mayor of the city, the ultimate enemy of our souls and the one who will always seek to bring attacks on Christ's people is the devil himself. As Paul said in Ephesians six twelve, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against those who actually speak the words of slander. Our struggle is against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is our battle. And by the way, this very reference here in in this letter to Smyrna automatically cancels out or undermines the possibility of post-millennialism or even amillennialism, the idea that Satan is already somehow bound and uninfluential on the earth. No, right in this letter, Jesus himself is saying the devil is very active. And it's important for us to remember this as well, not to become obsessed with him as we are going to see, but for us to remember the devil hates the church and he hates Christians. And we must expect tribulation in this world because there is a great slander, there is a great adversary, and as we're going to see, there is a great tempter. We come back to verse 10, and we see that the devil, this great slander, is going to throw some of them into prison. And and this is a, a reference to a literal prison, and 
for the Romans, there were multiple purposes for a prison, but they were, they were used not like they are really today. We think of prisons today in terms of long-term incarceration. There were only rare times when a prison would be used like that in the Roman times. In the Roman times, the prison stays were very brief, and they were intended for three things. Number one, to coerce obedience. So what do you do? You take your prisoner and you put him on the stocks, and you place him under great pain until he, 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 he submits, until he obeys. That was one purpose. A second purpose was to hold these prisoners for trial. And that would not take very long. It would be before the local governor, the magistrate, the proconsul. Or number three, to await execution. And it appears that any three of these could have been in, in, in view here in verse 10 as to what was awaiting the future of these Smyrnian believers. And, and Jesus then identifies why they would be put in prison. He says, so that you will be tested. The, the purpose of this imprisonment was to entice them to improper behavior, or we could use even the word to tempt. And, and the agent of this particular testing isn't stated in this particular clause, but we look just before that in verse 10, and we see it's the devil who's casting them into prison. Why? Because he wants to tempt them. He wants to entice them to improper behavior. What's the idea? That the devil would have them cast into prison so that they would bend to the pressure and confess that Caesar is Lord. That's what he wanted to entice. And Jesus says, you will be put in there for 10 days, probably a reference to the period of time, uh, the period of time excuse me, that was set for incarceration in Smyrna in those days. What does Jesus counsel this church? He says, in place of the fear, be faithful. Don't be afraid of this adversary. Don't be afraid of this slanderer. Don't be afraid of this tempter. Be faithful. In the place of fear, they were to cultivate faith. They were to cease that trepidation that had been characterizing them and instead demonstrate fidelity. And Jesus says, do this all the way up until death. And the idea there isn't right up to death, but not including, but instead the way the language is given here, it includes the experience of death itself. Jesus says in response, he says, you do that and I will give you the crown of life. The emblem of triumph, a very common idea that was connected with the athletic games. That the one who pressed through to the end, the overcomer, the victorious triumphant one would be given a garland or a wreath of leaves that would be placed on their heads. And Jesus says, you push through, you be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. What is fascinating to note here is that kings in those days would be the ones always to receive the crowns. And in a remarkable statement here, the one who is first and last, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, says to these suffering believers, I will give you crowns. And this crown will be defined as life. He is the one who himself had died and lives again. He was the one who could give this crown of life. There is an appeal that comes then in verse 11 at the beginning of this verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This kind of appeal is found in all of the letters, and it's a reminder that this is This is an appeal that is made to all. It's made not just to the church that is in Smyrna, but notice the plural at the very end of that sentence. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not only did it extend to all all the remaining six churches, but what Jesus instructs here and what he promises here also extends by extension to all churches 
universally, which means to us as well. And then he gives a final assurance, a beautiful close to this letter that was succinct, concise, and apropos to their setting. He says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Who is the overcomer? We've looked at this already. The overcomer is is common language in John's writings. We could look at 1 John 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Or 1 John 5, verses 4 to 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Any true believer Anyone who's genuinely regenerate will overcome, and Jesus promises then to give them a special status. You will not be hurt by the second death. Pain is the great enemy of man. All of us shrink back from any experience of pain. Nobody longs for it, and we see that death is that ultimate pain, and and there is so much so much anxiety associated with death because we wonder what what pain is there on the other side. And Jesus gives them this wonderful promise that there will be no pain on the other side of the first death. You will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? The second death, according to Revelation 20, 14, is the lake of fire. It's the lake of fire, eternal judgment. Jesus says to the overcomer, you will not be hurt by what comes after your physical death. You will not be hurt. You will not experience, you will not undergo the second death, which is eternal flames. Revelation 21 verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in that lake, that lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To the suffering church, Jesus promises it all. You will have life. You will have a guarantee of the opposite of that second death, which is eternal life in bliss. The church in Smyrna has been known for martyrs, not only by what Jesus writes here, but there's a fascinating historical illustration here. According to church tradition, a man by the name of Polycarp, who died in 155 AD, served as a bishop of this church in Smyrna in the first part of the second century. It is written that Polycarp, even learned under the Apostle John when John ministered in Ephesus. And according to history, Polycarp was arrested sometime around AD 155 for his ministry there in Smyrna. He was brought before the proconsul of Asia, Quadratus, and he was adjured by the proconsul to deny Christ or die. It is said that the proconsul said, take the oath and I will let you go. Revile your Christ. Polycarp refused and was sentenced to be burned with 10 other Christians in the theater there in Smyrna. And it is said that even the Jews not only brought accusations against Polycarp, but helped gather the wood for the fire, even though... It took place on a Sabbath. And what stands out about Polycarp was his final defense against the proconsul who adjured him to deny Christ. Such precious words. He said, 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? That is persevering faith. And we look at that and say, how could I ever respond that way? But if you have been given overcoming faith, if you have been born of God, Christ will give you the strength 
Some final applications to draw from this letter real quick. Remember that Christ, the Eternal One, is in control. He could end the suffering, but he doesn't. We often want the easy way out. We must remember that the most blessed rewards come through suffering. Number two, remember that Christ has himself experienced the humiliation of death and the triumph of resurrection, so he knows what he's talking about. He is not distant. He is intimately aware. Number three, remember that your real opponent is not your boss or coworker or neighbor or family member. It is the adversary, the, the slanderer of your soul, the, the great tempter who seeks to bring you to, to, to revile Christ. He is your true opponent. Number four, remember that it is not necessarily Christ's intent to rescue, but it is his intent to comfort and to give you life. Remember to cultivate faith in the place of fear. And remember, of course, that the reward awaits and it is more than worth it. Let's pray. Father, this letter does convict us as we look back over so many experiences in our lives when we have shrunk back, especially those times when we have remained silent, when people have reviled you and your son. We have avoided confrontation. We have just sought the easy way. We have not wanted to run countercultural. We seek to blend in. We pray that you would take the words of this letter and the example of the Smyrnians, the example of Polycarp, to remind us of what we are called to and to raise up within us a fervor to stand strong, to not be tempted, to willingly endure the privilege of suffering and persecution and slander for the sake of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give each one of us in our own contexts and circles of life the ability to stand strong, to not fear, to cease fearing, but instead be faithful in our profession and make it clear to the world that Jesus is Lord. For his glory's sake we pray. Amen.